0: Welcome to Beringa's Energy Innovators podcast, bringing you a series of thought-provoking and current conversations with industry leaders where we discuss the transition, transformation, and innovation in energy markets. On today's podcast, we have myself, Alan Rye from Beringa hosting, and I'm very happy to be joined by Tony Wood from the Grattan Institute and Alex Guzawinkel from Beringa's energy and resources practice in Australia. Beringa is an award-winning management consultancy specializing in energy and financial services. On this podcast today, we are going to be delving into Boringa Australia's reference case, which is a key offering in our energy advisory business. And we are gonna be talking with Tony and Alex about some recent challenges in achieving net zero for the Australian electricity sector. Well, thank you listeners for uh, tuning in to Baringa's latest podcasts. We are here today with a couple of uh, illustrious uh, speakers to talk through some recent challenges in achieving net zero for the Australian National Electricity Market, or NEM as it's known affectionately. My name's Alan Rye, I'm a director in the Baringa Australia team, and I'm joined by a couple of experts in the energy sector, starting with Alex Goswinkle and Tony Wood. Alex, could you introduce yourself please?
1: Thanks, Alan. Uh, My name's Alex Cosmical. I work at Baringa producing long-term forecasts of the national electricity market, which inform our quarterly updates for a broad range of clients. As part of our Q2 quarterly update, I've taken the lead on developing a net zero scenario, which incorporates a carbon budget and different electrification assumptions for the grid. Looking forward to having a chat on this topic today.
0: Thanks, Alex. And it's great to also welcome Tony Wood from the Gratton Institute.
2: Thanks, Alan. My name is Tony Wood. I'm the program director for energy and climate change at the Grattan Institute. The Grattan Institute is an independent public policy think tank in Australia. Um, We've published reports. Uh, We write uh, opinion pieces and participate in events like this to help uh, influence public policy. We have a range of reports over just about everything uh, relevant to the energy sector in the last 10 years. But more specifically, we've also been looking at uh, what it means if we are seriously going to transition to very low net zero, zero emissions, not just in the electricity sector, but in the broader economy. But to do that, we've specifically looked at electricity. And so I hope that um, this will be a useful interchange this afternoon.
0: Thanks, Tony. I trust it will. And uh, just to provide some context for why we're here today, listeners, uh, Australia's Commonwealth Government has committed Australia to reduce its emissions uh, in the year 2030 by 26 to 28% compared to its year 2005 level emissions. It's worth noting that this is not compatible with either a 1.5 or a 2 degree warming scenario. And therefore, there is increasing pressure from domestic and international quarters for the Commonwealth Government commit to greater emissions reductions especially for the the post-2030 period. A key source of domestic pressure is coming from Australia's state governments. All state governments have announced ambitions to achieve net zero emissions by the year 2050. Renewable energy targets or RETs as they are known for short are a key means of achieving states decarbonisation goals and broader economic growth goals and recent developments Uh, what we are here to talk with you about in particular challenges with achieving these net zero trajectories. So with all that said this podcast provides Beringa's and Grattan's perspectives on some of the challenges we face and we will talk about these challenges over the next few minutes with you. If I can turn now to Alex to talk through some of the recent developments and some of the challenges with meeting renewable energy targets and net zero.
1: So from the net zero modelling that we've been doing here at Beringa. Uh, One particularly sticky issue we've come across is the role of coal-fired power stations in creating carbon lock-in within the electricity sector. So carbon lock-in refers to the inertia of carbon emissions due to physical, economic and social constraints, all of which are, of course, relevant for the coal industry due to sunk costs associated with physical assets, the economic ramifications of a messy coal exit and the social impacts uh, from the loss of skilled employment. So the NEMS coal-fired power stations are responsible for a vast majority of the electricity sector's scope one emissions. Some of these were built in the 70s, some were built as recently as the 2000s. And operating these power stations to the end of their technical life, which is typically 40 to 50 years, would likely result in decarbonisation being required Uh, potentially at a higher cost, in other sectors of the economy, or indeed could risk overshooting carbon budgets. The subject of early coal closures is an understandably difficult one for state and federal governments to navigate, and recent actions taken by state governments actually seem to contradict their policy position on climate ambitions. So a couple of recent examples I'd like to discuss are in relation to recent actions taken by the Queensland and Victorian state governments. So in Victoria, the state government has recently come to a confidential agreement with Energy Australia to fix the closure date for the oldest and dirtiest coal-fired generator in the NEM, Yelan Power Station. And this deal sets the closure date for Yelan out at 2028, which according to some analysts may actually be extending the plant's operation beyond its economic viability due to increased fixed operations and maintenance costs as the plant gets older and becomes less reliable, as well as its exposure to negative spot prices due to its operational inflexibility. In Queensland, the CEO of Stanwell, which is a state-owned corporation, resigned soon after uh, suggesting that higher renewables penetration may actually lead to changing operating behaviour of their coal-fired assets, which is seemingly at odds uh, with the government's position. The state government has also reaffirmed their commitment to coal generation by supporting the replacement of the recently destroyed uh, turbine at Calide Sea, rather than looking at alternatives. And so these actions don't seem compatible with the net zero targets which have been set by all states, um, and certainly risks back-ending emissions mitigation, or indeed missing climate targets entirely.
0: Great, thanks, Alex. Um, <clears throat> Tony, as as our, as our a Victorian in this podcast, uh, keen to get your perspective on uh, what the lawn Yul- experience uh, tells us about state uh, net zero targets. Uh, it seems like quite a contradictory step uh, to be uh, prolonging the life of a, a brown coal-fired power station. What's your perspective on this?
2: Well, I think, Alan, that what you can see is that governments, state and federal, are trying to manage a transition from a system dominated by these coal-fired power stations that Alex has been talking about to one that's effectively sees their exit. And the prospects of a government's managing that process precisely are zero. And so what they're going to do is thrash around for a while, trying to both get them to close early, but also not get them to close too early almost inevitably they'll get that partly wrong. Best we can hope for is they don't get it too wrong in the wrong direction. So we could end up with slightly higher costs. The chances of being able to project that what physical problems are gonna occur with these plants as they are older and as external circumstances put more pressure on them both financially and physically is also impossible. So the best governments can do is try and design their uh, policies to ensure that we don't have um, rapid unexpected closure of coal-fired power stations because that would cause problems. But equally, we have to have very clear forward projections of emissions reduction obligations to ensure they do exit. Now, once you've got that in place, I see no reason why the markets can't solve that problem. I think the bigger concern is governments are gonna try and solve it for the market and the chances are we'll end up with problems. And that's why I think, you know, investors in any of these technologies should be nervous
0: and, and Tony, do you see there being a contradiction between having coal plants staying on the system and renewable energy targets being met? Is that, is that a circle that can be squared?
2: Okay, I think the answer is yes. Um, but you've got to be very clear how you do it. What you don't do is have an accelerator at the break at the same time. What you say is that we want to have um, a level of emissions reduction and we want to make sure that we at a level of reliability. And within those two parameters, we let the market work out what gets open and what gets closed in what sequence. The chances of being able to precisely coordinate when the last coal exits and they're and balancing renewables enters is, is almost certainly impossible. Um, so I think the only answer is for governments to step out of trying to do that. But I put the overall arching parameters in place and then be confident that there are mechanisms inside these markets to deliver what they're worried about. Um, And to some extent, stop worrying about it because there's a political concern, which I understand, that no minister wants to be energy minister when the lights go out. So they're more concerned about trying to put in more renewables, for example, ahead of the closure of coal-fired power stations. And then they get worried, oh my goodness, that's gonna cause the coal-fired power station to close too early, we won't be ready. And so we better keep them open a bit longer. Now that is clearly gonna cause a real problem if they do that. So that's why I think the only answer if we're gonna get this right is for governments to step back. My suspicion is that's not what's gonna happen. My suspicion is we're gonna end up with a bit of a mess for a while. And hopefully we can can transition to that future without major problems of reliability. We may end up uh, being unable to avoid um, some degree of higher costs in the process.
1: I guess my particular concern with this agreement between Energy Australia and the Victorian government is that it potentially puts the state um, on a pathway that's no longer aligned with the two degree warming scenario. So obviously brown coal power stations are very emissions intensive, um, and there's three in Victoria. Um, and the the modeling that Baringa have, have produced in, in the reference case shows that this agreement as we've interpreted um, actually displaces investment in renewable energy and displaces uh, lower emissions generation generally speaking Um, so it's my concern that these kind of policy decisions are being made outside of the framework of of state-based renewable energy targets or or any with any carbon budget in mind Um, do you think there's a need for a sectoral decarbonisation pathway to be defined for each state and for the economy so that the state and federal governments can make these decisions while actually taking into account the carbon trajectories and our alignment with our current and potentially future Paris and, and subsequent COP agreements?
2: Well, I think that would be <clears throat> ideal, but I think it's almost zero probability of happening. Um, because the political decision makers are not driven by what they sometimes say they're driven by, they're driven by other particular political issues in a sense. And so it's not unexpected in a sense, although it's disturbing that governments can have two or even three different policies which are fundamentally contradictory. Now, that's why I suspect uh, the three of us on this podcast today are not politicians. Because we find that difficult to hold contradictory positions in our head at the same time. That's what politicians do. So, um, you know, I think that, and so the question then is how does that tension resolve itself? Because if the governments, and of course there is a a big disconnect between renewable energy targets and emissions reduction targets, and none of the governments we're talking about have got those things connected in a policy sense. So they could run along for a while in a bit of a mess anyway. But even if they did, then I think you're left with, well, uh, how will this actually play out? Because one or other of their policy constraints will bind first. And it may be uh, keeping coal going. It may be shutting coal down. Um, And it's going to be a question of how they actually design these policies, some of which haven't been designed yet. So if they did have what you're talking about, Alex, a clear policy constraint. With legislation to meet a net zero target at a state or federal level, and we don't have any of those at the moment, then logically that would bind at some point, and those qualified power stations would either be forced to uh, by very expensive emissions permits, and we would therefore uh, have more more emissions occurring in electricity than's economically efficient, and less emissions reduction happening, and more emissions in uh, emissions reduction happening in other areas of the economy which is much more expensive than closing down the coal-fired power stations but that's where the tension arises because at some point you know the binding constraint um, will always move around to where is the uh, where the where the least cost is going to be and so i think the only consequence i can see that resolves your dilemma is we do end up with a very inefficient way of reducing emissions. I don't see any fundamental reason why we still couldn't achieve net zero across the economy, but we certainly wouldn't be achieving net zero inside the electricity sector.
0: And Just for the benefit of <clears throat> your listeners who aren't from Australia, just a bit of a context setting piece for you. Uh, in Australia, electricity is by and large a state jurisdiction. So when we talk about governments in the, pr- in the plural, we're talking really about state governments needing to Work together and uh, coordinate their activities across state boundaries, but also for state governments to work with the Commonwealth government. Uh, the Commonwealth government sets uh, emissions policy for the country. The, the Paris commitment that Australia signed up to was uh, was off the back of Commonwealth government action, uh, and so it makes it an interesting, but but nevertheless a bit more challenging sector in Australia because of the need to. Be cognizant of state federal boundaries and responsibilities. Tony if I can take your comments there and just segue to uh, a recent piece of work that you and your colleagues have done at Grattan, um, uh, the achievement of net zero. Uh, One of the key findings there that struck out to me was around your your view that um, achieving 100% renewables would be too expensive um, compared to something less than 100%. Um, uh, could you just talk us through briefly what some of your uh, key findings were and um, some of the drivers behind it?
2: Thanks Alan. What we were trying to do in this report was to look at two, um, I guess, the extremities of a debate. Because sometimes if you can understand the extremities then you can work out where we're likely to be and often it's not at the extremities. And one yep. of the extremities has been that we need, we're gonna need baseload coal-fired power stations for a long time yet, because you can't possibly power an economy with wind and solar, that's one hypothesis. The other alternative is though, we can do this with 100% renewables and we'll just back that up with um, with batteries and it'll be fine. Um, what we did instead of trying to do, which was a much more complex issue to try and do the sort of stuff that maybe Beringa does, which is do very uh, detailed modeling around pathways to get from where we are to somewhere else, we, sim- we sort of took a more simple approach and said, why don't we just jump forward to a couple of different endpoints and see what they look like. And one of the key ones in that world is um, very high renewables. So what we find is that we can get up to 70, 80, 90% renewables in this, as you called it, the national electricity market, which is really only about half the continent of Australia without too much effort, in a sense. Now, we know how to do it. Um, we have to build a significant amount of transmission to balance the wind and solar, which is fundamentally what the renewables are going to be. And yep. we need significant amount of uh, battery storage to balance the short-term fluctuations that are involved in meeting you know, all sorts of combinations of weather patterns and so forth. When we get up to the, the high levels of um, renewables and we've shut down all the coal-fired power stations, that sort of scenario, what we found was that we can certainly manage Uh, what normally people are worried about in Australia, and that is capacity during summer peak waves when you've got uh, correlated hot weather across uh, all regions of Australia. And, you know, relatively uh, longer storage, things like deeper battery storage would almost certainly be the most cost-effective way to do that, together with, as I said before, a lot of transmission. The problem we run into when we look at the actual weather data uh, across Australia is that you get to a period where in sometimes in winter where you have shorter days, lower solar output, correlated with um, wind output, which is consistently low across the, uh, the states for a period of time. And you because you're in winter, you've got relative, relatively high demand, They're not as much in the UK, but certainly relatively high demand. And what you find is that even with very high levels of renewable energy, wind and solar, across that with very levels of high levels of transmission, you can end up with a two-week period when you're nine gigawatts short. Now, that is a really hard problem to solve physically and financially. And Mm -hmm. for example, one of the biggest projects that have been talked about for deep storage in Australia would be a project called Snowy Hydro, which is 2,000 megawatts, um, which could last at full capacity seven days. Now you'd need nine of those to be able to cover the problem we're talking about. We don't have, The physical system to do nine of those. So, in our our conclusion was, look, we can get on with this job, and get up to very high levels of renewables without any major impact on reliability, price, or emissions reduction. As we get to the last ten percent or so of emissions in the electricity sector, we have to be, and in the meantime, we may find solutions to push this up to ninety four or ninety five percent. In the in the immediate term, as we can see, it, what we probably would do is use gas with offsets. Now that's not the perfect solution. There may be other technical solutions that we come up, we develop in the next 20 years. But our conclusion was trying to do 100% renewables, thinking we're gonna get there with what we know today um, would be um, unrealistic. And therefore we should take that in the context of the way we develop
0: policy. Very interesting, very interesting. Uh, Alex, keen for your perspective on the net zero work that, that you've been doing at Boringa and um, what some of the key findings are there for our listeners.
1: Yeah, so absolutely. Uh, we've we found similar um, issues once we get to very high levels of renewables penetration. Um, we, we model Snow 2.0 in our long-term price forecast. Obviously, that's not, as you've said, quite enough to balance uh, those renewable energy droughts, which tend to happen in those winter periods where you have high electricity demand for heating, uh, coupled with shorter uh, daytime hours, so less solar energy to charge and pump, uh, also coinciding with those very low wind, um, very cold and very low wind days. Um, One of the points I will make, however, is that Australia is blessed with quite uh, a a wide geographical range, um, with at least within the NEM. Um, We have interconnected transmission lines all the way from Tasmania, uh, South Australia, all the way up to far North Queensland. Um, And we do have some variability in particularly the wind generation. Obviously, solar is going to be inherently correlated. Um, You might get a 30 minutes or one hour either side, depending on how east and how west your solar farms might be. But um, there, there do seem to be uh, quite good anti-correlations for for wind generation between the northern Queensland renewable energy zones and the um, the southwest and southeast renewable energy zones, particularly on the coast for Victoria and Tasmania. So, um, I guess with a uh, an organised and planned uh, rollout of renewables, um, if the states were cooperating with each other and and discussing um, how best to to balance those renewable energy droughts, I I think the placement of those renewable energy projects would play a considerable role in in alleviating that issue. And on top of that, it it looks like Tasmania is quite keen to develop um, their, or, or redevelop their hydroelectricity sites into longer duration pump storage. At the moment, they're primarily being used as run of river hydroelectricity, um, to, to power the bulk of the state's electricity, um, but it seems like Tasmania is moving the direction into the direction of using those hydro assets for firming um, and less for the for bulk energy, and um, and hopefully through the the rollout of Marinus Link um, One and Two, so interconnectors between Tasmania and the uh, the mainland, um, I guess they're hoping to to use those hydro generation assets and those. Dams as balancing for the, for the whole NEM rather than just energy generation for the state. Um, so keen to hear your thoughts as well on, on Tasmania's role potentially, being one of the only places in Australia where we do have the capacity for, for deep hydro storage.
2: Yeah, you know, I guess the, those very challenges and those possibilities we explored, Alex, in our, in our work and our analysis we did incorporated all of those issues. So we took actual weather patterns hour by hour across the entire NIM based upon weather data over the last 10 years. Um, We incorporated all of the build out of the transmission system, including Marinus Link, um, and we still found the problem. I mean, you get get pretty good. (laughs) You get pretty close. But as you get towards the very end, this cost curve, this technical curve problem starts to run away with you and it looks like it becomes very difficult to do. Now, again, I'm not, we're not, I'm not saying this won't happen, we can't find ways around it, um, but it's hard to see how we can find economically effective ways around it. And of course, we also know, and this is common across the world, I think, not just Australia, that uh, it's not unusual for companies and industries and governments to be talking about, well, we'll just, this is what net zero means, right? We'll just uh, go as far as we can with reducing emissions and then we'll offset the rest. Now that becomes really difficult, if everybody's trying to offset because the the offset market is not that deep or liquid and it's probably gonna be bloody expensive. So um, I think that doesn't, while that is a possible safety valve, it's quite difficult I think today to see what the safety valve might be. Now, whether or not you could have serious amounts of um, hydrogen storage, whether you could actually seriously look at carbon capture and storage um, and fossil plants, I don't really know, but I do know that all of those alternatives are really expensive like they're not we're talking broadly system delivered costs of power of the sort of you know 100 to 120 dollars a megawatt hour we start seeing costs in 200 and 200 plus and that's just not going to work politically so i think the challenge is um as we've looked at it uh very difficult and i think to, from what i've heard you say the the possible safety valves that you've talked about have already we've already incorporated in that analysis and you know i i just um, as i said we we just ran out of uh, alternatives in terms of the overbuilding renewables, more storage, trying to reduce demand, more flexibility. None of those provides enough to be able to deal with the um, particular problems you find. Um, and, you, and as you say, you've described the circumstances you're trying to solve for exactly the same way we saw it.
0: Yeah, Tony and Alex, I think one of the things we can all agree on, and certainly in reading the Go for Net Zero work as well as our Bring a Reference Case report, is the need for inter and intra-regional. Uh, network investment um, to tap into the resource diversity uh, but also to enable uh, for sharing of capacity, generation capacity across state boundaries. Um, Just segueing now Tony to I guess the the call to action for state governments in terms of what they should be doing to minimize the cost of achieving their renewable energy targets and more generally transitioning to net zero. Keen to get your perspective on what they should be doing, but they aren't doing. What are the things that they are doing now that they shouldn't be um, for our listeners?
2: Look, I guess um, beyond being confident we can go a long way down the path of reducing emissions without impacting cost and reliability, um, we need to get on with that game. It'd be better if we could coordinate that, but just keep doing it. Um, the other big issues are, one of them you just referred to Alan, that is the importance of the interconnected system Um, for exactly the same reasons Alex was talking about. As you get up into 60, 70, 80% renewables across Australia, the the economic value of that transmission system just increases. Now, we've also seen actually in the last couple of weeks on the East Coast of Australia, the value of having the interconnected system as well, because uh, a major power unit in Queensland went offline, Queensland went from being normally a net exporter to a net importer pretty quickly, and that's important. And that will become more important in the future so i think it's been what that means for me is that any government in australia state government in the way you described alan who thinks they can go it alone is simply wrong and they need we need to recognize the value of the interconnected nem and make sure that we develop plan for and develop that system in a way that really does go alongside the aspirational renewable energy and emissions reduction targets that states have And that comes to the other important point, I think, and that is that if you think about emissions across the economy, what we need to be, what we should be doing is addressing the emissions which are relatively low cost and for which we understand the technologies today first, and then gradually doing the things that are more expensive and harder later. I mean, the the technical term is follow the marginal abatement cost curve. Unfortunately, where we are at the moment in this arrangement is we put so much effort on electricity we may be chasing the last few percents of emissions in electricity, which become really expensive, and not chasing enough of the cheap emissions reduction opportunities in other sectors of our economy. So the other thing I would desperately look for our uh, governments, both state and federal, to try and work together on is an economy-wide carbon policy. Now, whether it's a carbon price or a carbon tax or any other mechanism, I don't care all that much. But what we do need to do is get a degree of coordination across the economy. Otherwise, again, the risk isn't that we can't reduce emissions, the risk is we actually do it in a way that's much more expensive than it should be, and we will regret that, I think.
0: Tony, we don't have time, sadly, to tap into the dark art that is state-federal policy coordination, (laughs) but certainly keen to get your, I guess, elevator pitch on how that could happen, given we've had a few... Uh, false starts, uh, the National Energy Guarantee, and a few other things that some of our listeners from outside of Australia wouldn't have ever heard of, and uh, it's probably for good reason that they uh, haven't heard of it. Um, How would we we sort of achieve that from your perspective? Or how could we start to achieve?
2: Yeah, I guess it's worth pointing out, particularly for listeners who are not in Australia, that um, the major federal government opposition, uh, the Labor Party, doesn't have a clear solution to this issue either. So it's not, it's an it's actually a problem for both of the major parties to sort out how they would do this. Yep. But one of the biggest problems is the lack of coordination between state and federal governments. So you know, climate policy basically is in, in in a conceptual sense, at least and in an international political sense, political sense, absolutely, the responsibility of nation states. But what we found in Australia is because the national government hasn't had a clear, credible climate policy, the states have decided to step in, and that's where it gets messy. There's a term that we use in Australia called cooperative federalism. And unfortunately, we practice that more in the breach than in the observance. And so what we have is a situation in which it's not working very well. There have been a couple of attempts to try and put in place a a common approach across the economy. Um, They've mostly failed because of politics. So my, my suspicion, Alan, is that in the short term, this isn't going to change. And we could wish it would, but it's not. I think what will cause it to change, what we can do is other things. We can certainly be making progress in the right direction with appropriate policies, and we can go a long way in the electricity sector, even if it's not perfect. But over time, I think we will start to realise that we need to change. And so what's going to have to change is the perception of of the political leaders that the the real political pressure, and you referred to this a little bit in your introduction, the real political pressure on whoever's in government in Australia will be such that they will have to have credible climate policy and that will end up almost being back where we were where we started some 15 years ago. Sometimes it takes a long time to get back where we started and then realize that's where we were in the first place. But maybe that's what we have to do because I think at the moment it's I can't I can't see the politics giving the opportunity for what needs to happen. Because I think whenever a politician sees that uh, effectively denying action on climate change in the way we've been talking about. Is politically advantageous, that's what they'll do.
0: Tony, your comments bring to mind the Winston Churchillian expression that you can trust Americans to do the right thing after they've tried everything else. <laughs> Perhaps that's the same for energy policy in Australia. But I might turn now to Alex and ask you, Alex, to get your and Beringa's perspective on what states should be doing to minimise the cost of transitioning
1: to net zero. As I As I mentioned before, I think it's important that states work together on this issue, and and you've said something along the similar lines, along similar lines of uh, don't go it alone because you won't you won't do it uh, in a least cost effective way. Um, I think it's important for, the, for our listeners to um, learn about uh, the Australian Energy Market Operator um, and their role in in this transition as well. Um, they're playing an increasing role in developing a long-term strategy for decarbonisation and and meeting electricity demand. It's called the Integrated System Plan. highly recommend uh, having a read through. Um, And this is becoming uh, a bit of a guideline for states um, in this transition um, out of coal and uh, into renewables. Um, And I think this is becoming a a bit of a proxy for a federal level um, renewable energy and environmental policy or carbon reduction policy. Um, And it seems that states are are beginning to pick up um, pieces of of information from the integrated system plan um, and and incorporate that into their policy. So a really good example of that is the New South Wales government's uh, roadmap where they're now legislating renewable energy zones um, uh, in line with the integrated system plan. um, And also uh, helping to fund transmission projects so transmission augmentations, both within the state and between states. And so I think that as we've discussed is is really key to this net zero and um, emissions reductions uh, trajectory is is that cooperation on a uh, interstate level, uh, with an overarching uh, NEM-wide plan to help decarbonize and replace coal-fired generators as they come offline.
0: Great, thanks, Alex. And I think with that, uh, we we can look to wrap up. I've I've certainly been encouraged by the last few minutes of our podcast listeners, um, the the echoing of the need for coordination and the and the echoing of the need for uh, investment in the right types of technologies, both generation and uh, network investment, um, and I look forward to the day when, when Tony Wood is the Energy Minister uh, for Australia and can set policy that is in the best interests of, of Australians, um, and, but in the meantime, we will have to do with, uh, with, with where we are, and uh, I thank you, Tony, f- for your perspective and, and your participation in the podcast. We have certainly benefited from your insight and your wisdom, and Grant's participation in this is very much appreciated, uh, and I thank you, Alex, as well, for joining us. Thanks, Alan. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please hit the subscribe button to keep up to date with our latest podcast releases and hear more from Beringa and our energy innovators. If you have a question or a comment about the podcast or would like to learn more about Beringa, please email us at energypodcastburinga.com or visit our website, which is linked in the podcast bio. Thanks again for listening.